Well, it's been a few weeks since we left off in our series, a little detour last week. I want to thank Robert Hendricks for stepping in uh, while I was gone as well. I asked him before I left uh, to be ready. I was thinking delayed flight, <laughs> not uh, quarantined in Ecuador, but nonetheless, he was ready to go and did a fantastic job, and I just appreciate him, uh, just the Lord bringing him here and what he's meant to me and and the relationship that we have begun, and, and I'm thankful for him. But we pick back up today in our series. Two more weeks. I brought with me a bowl that belongs to uh, Mandy, used to belong to Mandy's grandmother, was handed down to her, um, and it is v- very fragile. Um, so how do you guys think I should handle this? <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to mess around and try to be funny either. I'm going to hold on to it because I don't want to break this bowl. It's been around a long time. It is fragile. And if I were going to, not going to do this, but if I were going to take it, pack it up and ship it, I would get a sticker to put on the box that would say what? And fragile handle with care. Uh, And that's how I should handle this. Anything that's fragile, but guess what? That is also how we should handle other human beings with care. And it's called gentleness. And that's the flavor of fruit that we're looking at today as we continue our series on the fruit of the Spirit. So I'm going to sit this right here, and y'all just uh, pray with me that I don't bump the table, okay? Uh, As a matter of fact, I'm going to set this on the ground back here because I just don't want to mess it up, all right? Uh, So anyway, gentleness. I'm being gentle with the bowl. We need to be gentle with other people. A flavor of fruit in the fruit of the Spirit, which comes from Galatians uh, chapter 2, or chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Uh, we have been a few weeks since we've read that, so let's look at that together. We'll look at the fruit of the Spirit as it is outlined in Galatians chapter 5. This is about authentic Christian living. This is about uh, living out my faith, the character of Christ in my life, displayed through my life. So the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith or faithfulness, all of those we've looked at, right? Today, we come to gentleness, and then next week is self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now, y'all back up with me and look at the theme of our series. Let's just take a reminder. What is the theme? What is this series about? This series, the fruit of the Spirit, it flows in us. By the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has to be present in my life for me to display this fruit, and it flows out of us for the advancement of the gospel and the glory of God. It's about what Jesus is doing in my life, the Holy Spirit working in me, but also it should be on the outside. It should be evident in the way that I live, and it's for His glory, for the advancement of His gospel. And it is about the Holy Spirit working in me, but I also just can't expect just to sit back and do nothing. I have a part in it, right? I have to submit. It's about abiding in Christ as I abide in him, live in obedience to him, practice spiritual disciplines. He will cultivate this fruit in my life. And we also understand that it is one fruit with nine flavors, not different fruits, but one fruit. So if I'm a believer, I will display all of these characters, characteristics in my life. Now, we all struggle with some of them, and you've probably identified, as I have, with, with some that you struggle with. But through submission, through obedience, we can all display these flavors of fruit. Now, look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. As we move to the flavor of gentleness, 
I want to read that for you. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Therefore, God's chosen ones, holy and loved, put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Very similar to the fruit of the Spirit, especially as it relates to gentleness. All of these characteristics work together. Compassion, kindness, humility, patience, all, all involved in, in displaying gentleness. You know, we pray for a lot of things. We pray for, for peace. We pray for righteousness. Um, we should pray for patience. We don't like to pray for that, but we, we should. Um, at least we talk about it, right? But we don't really maybe pray for gentleness that much. I mean, that's probably not at the top of our list. And maybe it's simply because we don't value gentleness as much as God does. He does value it greatly. Uh, George Bethune in 1839 said this. He said, perhaps no grace is less prayed for or less cultivated than gentleness. Again, maybe we just don't value it as much as God. So what is it? What is gentleness? Well, it's, it's kind of hard to define. A lot of people confuse it with meekness, although they are different. Uh, Billy Graham defined gentleness as mildness dealing with others. It displays a sensitive regard for others and is careful never to be unfeeling for the rights of others. And so it's different than meekness. And here's a way to differentiate it. Looking at gentleness, that is an active trait. It, it describes how I treat others, actively treating others, whereas meekness is more of a passive trait. It, it describes a proper response when others mistreat us. So how are we going to respond? Gentleness is how I actively treat you. Meekness is more in how I respond. And we'll talk a little bit more about uh, that when we talk about uh, facing opposition, persecution. But, but nonetheless, there are distinct differences. Uh, gentleness is the way that we handle that fragile thing. Um, we handle with care or are we, are we careless with it? Gentleness is handling it with care. It's recognition that, that human beings and human personalities are fragile things. And that if I'm going to display the love of Christ, then I'm going to handle people with gentleness. Even when there's conflict involved, I want to handle them with gentleness. Now turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Both gentleness and meekness we see in Isaiah in, in other areas of Scripture, but we see uh, gentleness and meekness are both born of power, and we see uh, the gentleness of God displayed alongside His power in Isaiah chapter 40. We'll start with verse 10. See, the Lord God comes with strength, and His power establishes His rule. His reward is with them, and His gifts accompany Him. And then verse 15, jump ahead to verse 15. Look, the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are considered as a speck of dust in the scales. He lifts up the islands like fine dust. And then further down in verse 25 and 26, who will, com will you compare me to or who is my equal, God says. Uh, look up and see who created these. He brings out the starry hosts by number. He calls all of them by name because of his great power and strength. Not one of them is missing. But tucked right in the middle of those descriptions of God's incredible power are these words in verse 11. He protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads them, gently leads them, leads those that are nursing. So the same passage that stresses the power of God, the magnificence of God, uncomparable, power of God 
also describes him as a shepherd shepherding his sheep, taking care of his sheep, as gentle. And so these two things go hand in hand. We should never worry that gentleness means that we are weak. God is not weak, yet he is also gentle. So gentleness, it takes, as a matter of fact, the power of Christ, the power of God to be gentle in the way that God requires that we be gentle. Two different translations of Psalm 1835 help us to find gentleness. One translation we find in the ESV, your gentleness also stated this way in the King James, your gentleness makes me great. The other translation we see in the New International Version, it says you have stooped down, God has stooped down to make us great. So with that in mind, here's our working definition of gentleness. It is gentleness is stooping down to help someone. Recognizing that God came to us, he stooped down, he continues to do that, to help us, to lift us up, we are required to do the same for others. That is showing gentleness. And as we look at Jesus' life, we see some characteristics of gentleness that we need to emulate. That if we're going to be gentle, as is required uh, in Galatians, by God, the fruit of the Spirit, a flavor of fruit, these characteristics will be evident in our life. Number one is this. Gentleness is patience with those who are weak. It is being patient with those who are weak. Matthew eleven twenty gives us a great picture of this. Uh, Jesus, the way he treats us. Matthew, or excuse me, twelve twenty, I believe it is. He will break a bruised reed, and he will not put out a smoldering wick until he has led justice to victory. So the bruised reed and the smoldering wick are talking about people who are hurting spiritually weak, or young in the faith. Any of those. Somebody could be hurting. You want to be gentle with them. If they are, are, are weak in their faith, are young in their faith, uh, spiritually weak, you want to be gentle. And that's how God treats those who fall into those categories. He doesn't come down on them with a heavy hand. He recognizes their weakness. He meets them where they are, and then he leads them to where they need to be. He deals with them gently until their true need is exposed. Uh, this could be someone who is lost, right? I mean, you deal gently with someone, and you lead them. You show them the truth. God shows the truth. He brings us under conviction, and he shows us our need. But he deals gently, and, and this is probably best shown in the story of the Samaritan woman at the well, how Jesus deals with her. He confronts her. He speaks the truth. The truth is not watered down. He is honest about her life and where she is, but he deals gently with her. In John chapter 4, even though he's direct and truthful, he is gentle. Now, when we see his words in John chapter 4, we're not going to read all of that, but when we see that encounter with the Samaritan woman, it's easy to read that story and read it as a rebuke. And, and I do believe that it is, uh, but we don't know all the circumstances either. You know, we do know that she had had five husbands, but we also know that divorce was the man's prerogative in that day. So it's possible that she could have been mistreated and thrown away, cast aside by those men. We don't know all of the circumstances. We can't just pass judgment. What we do see is that Jesus is gentle with her. On the other hand, I doubt she was guilt-free in all of it. 
mean, she, I'm sure she had a part in those failed marriages. We do know that she's living with a man out of wedlock while being married to someone else when Jesus confronts her. So she's not guilt-free in all of it. I mean, there's blame to be shared. She's definitely guilty of sin, but it's interesting how Jesus deals with her. He talks to her. He speaks to her with gentleness directly, but with gentleness. And slowly but surely, as you see the conversation unfold, first she's resistant, but as he reveals himself, as he continues the conversation with her, what happens? Eventually, she realizes her need for living water right? She realizes her need and that he can show her, he can provide her with a way to have a relationship with God in spirit and in truth through himself, through the Messiah, through Jesus Christ. So gently, one step at a time, he leads her to the point to where she recognizes her need. And, and, and this, this conversation is so amazing. The fact that he's talking to a Samaritan woman and dealing with her so gently on top of that is shocking, alarming to his disciples, right? But there's a lesson to be learned here. We can encounter those who are lost or weak in the faith. When we do, we need to respond with gentleness that points them to Christ. I mean, it's easy to become frustrated with someone who disagrees with you. It's easy to become frustrated with someone who refuses to believe when you're offering them the truth. But we need to continue to deal with them gently in a way that points them to Christ. In gentleness, we demonstrate respect for their personal dignity while communicating the truth of the gospel, pointing them to their need for salvation. We continue to work with them with persuasion and kindness, not domination or intimidation. That's not uh, the, the correct approach. We don't try to, to coerce them by threatening them or, or through a guilt trip. We just continue to work with them. And listen, sometimes this is not an overnight thing or an instantaneous thing. Sometimes it means we have to invest in people. We have to build relationships with people over the long haul for the purpose of leading them to Christ, relational evangelism. It means once they are saved, we continue to disciple them, walk with them, which leads to our next characteristic. And that is gentleness is rest for those who are burdened. Discipleship is how we find rest. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, Jesus says this. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. All of you, take up my yoke. Learn from me, because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for yourselves, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, Jesus is contrasting his way with the way of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There was an expression in this day and time, taking upon yourselves the yoke of the law. And the idea was that, that Jews, a good Israelite, a good Jew would bend their neck and take on the law, submit to the law of the Lord, just like an ox does a, into a yoke for a farmer. And listen, there's a sense where this was right and good. I mean, the law was established for Israel's benefit, for their well-being. He had redeemed his people, and the law was given to them as a gift. They gave them the ability to live in a way morally right so that they could enjoy the blessing of redemption. It was the way to have fellowship with God. The law served a, 
a purpose in, in the, under the old covenant that gave them boundaries. It was always meant to show our need for salvation, right? But there's still the law was right and good, and it was right and good for, for people to submit to that so that they could have right fellowship with God, so they could enjoy the blessing of fellowship with him. But by the time Jesus comes on the scene, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had taken the law and twisted it and added so many extra laws to it that it was no longer providing rest and freedom. It was, provi- it was a burden. It was a weight that, that kept them from enjoying anything in life. And, and there was no way to have fellowship with God because no one could follow all of the rules that had been added to God's original law. It, the, the Pharisees had taken it and encrusted God's command with their own traditions to the point that it was anything but gentle. And those who were leading the Pharisees and Sadducees were anything but humble. It was about control. It was about power. It was about their personal preference as opposed to God's law. Now, listen, Jesus wasn't telling them to throw off the law. He was very clear. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. Uh, He's not encouraging people to disobey the law. The law still has a purpose. Today, it still has a purpose. That's not what he's saying here. He came to fulfill it. And in doing so, we recognize the idea here is that we see him as our perfect teacher, our perfect model, the, the one we learn from. We are disciples, his students. And so getting in the yoke with him, learning from him, provides rest. They needed to see him as the true embodiment of what the law really aimed at, a loving, faithful, compassionate, and obedient relationship with God. And they could live that way if they would just get in the yoke, if they would learn from him, if they would accept him as Lord and learn from him. And in doing that, you find rest. They would find rest. Obeying God, learning from him, produces rest. It's not about man's traditions. It's not about a burden that we can't carry. He carries, he does, he's the more experienced. He carries the heavy lifting. We just obey and we learn from him. And there's rest in that. In fact, I believe, I, I believe very much that, that people often were at ease and found rest just in the presence of Jesus. Have you ever experienced that as a follower of Christ? I think one of the things that drew people to him, he always, just like with the Samaritan woman, he spoke the truth. He didn't deny, he didn't back off from doing that. But people found rest in his presence. People were at ease in his presence. And you and I can find that same rest in the presence of Jesus. We learn from him as he gently molds us and shapes us into his image. This is discipleship and discipleship of Jesus following him means becoming more like him, which includes being characterized by gentleness and humility. You know, that kind of Christ likeness, the fruit of the spirit of Jesus is so different from the harshness and arrogance that we see in the Pharisees, that we see in, in folks who allow their religion to be, make them self-righteous to the point to where everyone else is inferior. Um, it's, it's, that's the opposite of true gentleness, uh, that, that harshness and arrogance can so easily pollute individuals into behaving in a self-righteous manner. But if we're going to display the gentleness of Christ, we need to actively seek to make others feel at ease or restful in our presence. We're not watering down the truth. We're not trying to make them feel good about their sin. 
but we want them to experience the gentleness of Christ when they're in our presence. We avoid displaying our commitment to Christ in discipleship in a way that makes individuals feel guilty, that they're not where they should be. I mean, there should be a desire to grow, but they find rest. We want them to find the same rest that we have found in the presence of Jesus Christ, the same mercy, the same uh, grace. We don't want to break that bruised reed or put out that smoldering wick. We don't want to discourage folks to the point to where they feel like I, just, there's, I can't be what God wants me to be. You know you're not where you need to be. None of us are, by the way. And so I want you to, to follow along beside me. I want you to learn from me as I learn from Christ. I want you to get in the yoke with Christ and learn from him. Through gentleness, we help them find rest and release from their burden of sin, whether they're saved or not. If they're lost, we help them find rest through salvation. If they're saved, we help them find rest through surrender daily and understanding what it means to be a follower of Christ and exemplifying that in our lives. We want them to find the rest that we have come to know. We don't water down the teachings of Jesus. We don't justify sin, but we take people just like Jesus does with us. We take them where they are and gently lead them where they need to be. That's discipleship. And that's what we're called to do, to share our lives, invest in those who are are further behind than we are in their spiritual walk. And this is all about, here's the difference between the Pharisees and Jesus' way. It's about the rest of relationship with Jesus Christ versus the legalism created by man. It's not about following a set of rules so that I can be more holy than you. It is about relationship. It's obedience that's motivated by love and a desire to become more like Jesus. It's about surrender and the rest of working and learning from Jesus Christ, working alongside and learning from him. And we help people experience the joy of that, becoming more like him, experiencing the life he has planned for them, which is what's best. We invest in them, we disciple them, we're patient with them. And when they fall, we continue to be patient with them because they will, which leads us to our next characteristic. Gentleness is healing for those who have fallen. What about a brother or sister who's fallen into sin? I mean, how do we deal with somebody who's, who's disobedient, who's fallen into sin? How do we respond in gentleness to that person? Well, we can see, I think the best place to look is how Jesus dealt with Peter. When he denied him, how did Jesus deal with him? Let's look at that denial in John chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, 25 through 27. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was following Jesus, as was another disciple. And most believe that it was John. John talked about himself in the third person a lot. Um, Don't know for sure. But that disciple was an acquaintance of the high priest. So he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter remained standing outside by the door. So the other, peop- the other disciple, the one known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the girl who was the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. The slave girl who was the doorkeeper said to Peter, you aren't one of this man's disciples, are you? To which Peter responded, I'm not. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself by the fire. And they said to him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it and said, I'm not. One of the high priest's slaves, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, said, didn't I see you with him in the garden? And Peter denied it again, and immediately the rooster crowed after his denial. See, what's amazing about this is Jesus had told him he was going to do this. In John chapter 13, verse 36, Lord, Simon Peter said, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you may not go. He's talking about his crucifixion. 
his sacrifice. He said, but you will follow later, giving a glimpse into Peter's future. Verse 37, Lord, Peter asked, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus replied, will you lay down your life for me? I assure you, the rooster, a rooster will not crow until you've denied me three times. Now, take that for a moment and imagine after that third time, when that rooster crowed, it all clicked in Peter's mind. Imagine the guilt, the shame he felt in that moment. Did you know, he, he, knew, he just knew his days as a disciple of Christ, much, more, much less a leader of the, that group of people. Don't you know, he just figured, oh, those days are over. How could I ever face Jesus again? How can I face those other guys again? I mean, I'm done. And he just knew that was it. This bold guy who was known for putting his foot in his mouth because he was so bold suddenly is cowering down and is ashamed to be identified with Jesus Christ. I'm sure these questions were hanging in the air. After Jesus was raised from the dead and that breakfast that he cooked, bread and fish for his hungry disciples in John chapter 21, I'm sure Peter was just ashamed. I'm sure... The other disciples knew what had happened. I mean, if that was John, he, he knew that it had happened. If it was, in fact, him that got him into that courtyard. But John tells a story of what Jesus said to Peter that morning. In John chapter 21, verse 15, when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, Jesus told him. A second time, he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told them. He asked him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him a third time. I, you just kind of get, you see Peter, it all kind of coming together, right? He's, he's grieving over his denial. This is true, heartfelt repentance. Peter responds to Jesus. He says, Jesus says, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know my heart. You predicted I was going to deny you. That came true. You know everything. I've seen that time and time again. I'm, I'm, I'm done trying to figure it out on my own. I know I'm a sinful man. And he says, you know that I love you. And he did. And so Jesus says, feed my sheep. You know, John tells us after breakfast, this takes place. You know, here it's interesting. I think this is, we need to pay attention to what's going on in this scene. Put yourself in the scene. Jesus, this is after breakfast is over. Jesus doesn't do this in front of everybody to embarrass him. I mean, John overheard this, but it, I, I picture Jesus, breakfast is over. Jesus and Peter are walking away, and Jesus says, hey, Peter, let me talk to you for a minute. Do you love me? And Peter says, of course, three times. Why three times? To give him complete and total, not that he couldn't have forgiven him with one word, still to give Peter peace of mind, to offer him the opportunity for complete and total repentance, forgiveness for his own comfort. And in sincerity, he does that. And that's all Jesus needs to hear. He knows his heart. You know everything, Lord, and he does. He knows his heart. And by the way, John overhearing this, it was all John needed to hear too. Not that his opinion really mattered, but nonetheless, he records it because it has great impact on him as well. And that's what Jesus does. I mean, he could have rebuked Peter in front of the disciples. He could have called him out. Hey, I told you you were going to do that, didn't I? Can't believe you did that. 
You had the opportunity to do what you said to die for me, but yet you denied me. No, he says, Peter, let me offer you a way to make up for what you... Not only am I going to give you forgiveness, I'm going to let you make up for it. And we see from Pentecost and beyond, Peter, his demeanor changes. Suddenly his arrogance is replaced by boldness tempered by humility, and that's important. God took that same tenacity and channeled it and used it to start his church. But what was different was that Peter went through that experience because he needed to be humbled. And he was. And God took that man and used him to lead a small band of misfits to start a revolution that you and I, the reason we're sitting here today is because of what Jesus did. Don't get me wrong, but also because of their faithfulness and their witness. His church, upon this rock, Peter, upon you, I'm going to build my church. And boy, did he ever. And it was all because Peter was willing to humble himself. And that goes back to how Jesus dealt with him. And we see that Peter the failure became Peter the forgiven through the gentleness of Jesus. He was forever changed. And if we want to display the flavor of gentleness in our life as Christians, we will not degrade, belittle, or gossip people when they fail, about them when they fail. We won't hold it over them. We won't bear a grudge. We won't respond in kind. We will respond with gentleness. Don't excuse what they did. We hold them accountable. If we are given the opportunity to become personally involved with that brother or that sister who has fallen, then we we should seek to deal with them gently. As Paul tells us to in Galatians 6, recognizing that we too are subject to temptation and we too have fallen. Verse 1 of Galatians 6, brothers, if someone is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Our goal should be restoration. Hey, none of us are perfect, right? We've all failed. We all fall. And we should carry each other's burdens and restore those who have fallen with gentleness and humility, recognizing that it could be any one of us. None of us are exempt from temptation. And none of us are so perfect that we could not possibly fall. And so we should respond with the humility that recognizes that with gentleness. A fourth characteristic. Gentleness is grace for those who oppose you. Gentleness is displaying grace to those who oppose you. Grace is displayed in abundance to us from our Savior, and we are called to do that even when people come against us, even when there's persecution, the threat of death. You know, uh, the response to persecution, we talked about meekness is the response. It is, it is not responding uh, in a, uh, to seek retribution or in anger or anything like that. So there's, there's, that is the response, the passive, I guess, response to opposition and persecution. However, gentleness does come into play here because when we're, gi- we're given the opportunity to treat our oppressors a certain way, we should treat them with gentleness. And again, in the life of Jesus, when he was, this was tested most at his arrest and his crucifixion. And we see the night that he was arrested in the garden. We see Peter, this was prior to his, his lesson in humility. He draws his sword and cuts off the ear of the slave of the high priest. Jesus responds in Matthew chapter 26, verse 52 Put your sword back. Peter, put your sword back in its place because all who take up a sword will perish, will die by the sword. Or do you think, do you not think 
Or you think I cannot call on my father and he will provide me at once with more than 12 legions of angels. How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that it say it must happen this way? Peter, right now you're a stumbling block. You're getting in the way this has to happen. He responds the way Jesus responds to this. He says himself he could have called 12 legions of angels to protect him, but he doesn't. When he was questioned, when he was facing trial before the Jewish court, he could have responded with every accusation and anger, righteous anger, by the way, not sinning. He could have done that, but he didn't. He mostly kept silent before the court. When they were nailing him to the cross, he could have called down curses on everybody that was doing that, everybody present. Instead, what does he do? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Gentleness. When he was in the midst of agony on the cross, what does he do? He doesn't think of himself. He thinks of the needs of his mother and entrusts her to the disciple that he loves, to John. He's thinking of her. He's constantly thinking of others. He's constantly dealing. The God of the universe, who could have called down wrath on everybody there, rightly so, instead, when facing suffering and death, responds with gentleness and humility. I'm thankful that he did because we're saved because of his sacrifice and his resurrection. But don't miss the lesson in that for us, a lesson that Peter learned very well. As a matter of fact, we look at Peter and we see that he, and later on in 1 Peter chapter 2, he looks at the story of the crucifixion, the arrest and crucifixion, the suffering and death of Jesus, not only as a sacrifice, yes, it was, it was the atonement for our sin, but he also, he uses it as an example of how anyone who faces persecution, suffering, opposition, death should respond. He quotes Isaiah 53 in 1 Peter 2.20. For what credit, and through 23, and what, for what credit is it if you sin and are punished and you endure it, but when you do what is good, when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. If you just suffer for, for sin, there's no, no glory in that. There's no, there's no good in that. But if you suffer for the sake of Christ, that brings favor with God. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered. So you see, this is an example. And, and destiny for all believers to some degree. Christ also, also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. So yes, it's an example. Verse 22, he did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was suffering, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. So when we face persecution or when we just face opposition, okay, it doesn't have to be that you're being persecuted. Maybe you're just facing opposition by those who don't believe. Because of your faith, you're facing opposition or persecution. We should respond with gentleness and grace just as Jesus did. We leave justice to God. We, we should leave it in the hands of God. We leave him to dissolve the opposition if he chooses to do so. If he wants to spare us from persecution, praise him. But if he calls us to endure it, we endure it and respond. We should endure and respond gently with the strength that he provides to endure. That's key. Living, abiding in Christ, submitting to him is how we display this flavor of fruit as well as the others. Through our gentle response, though, we display the character of Christ 
in ways and have impact on those who are doing the persecuting in ways that we would not otherwise. And then when given the opportunity in the midst of opposition, we gently instruct just like Paul instructed Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 24, the Lord's slave must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of truth. Then they may come to their senses and escape the devil's trap, having been captured by him to do his will. So we glorify Christ in the midst of suffering. We respond gently. And then when given the opportunity, we explain why we're doing it. We instruct them, lead them, point to Jesus Christ with the hopes that, yes, even those who oppress us will come to know Christ, will come to find salvation. And Paul gives us the motivation for this in Philippians 4, 7. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. God is here. He is with us. Those who are believers, he lives in us. We abide in him. He is always watching. He sees how we respond. Even in the midst of the most difficult of circumstances, when we're hurting, when people are hurting us, he sees how we respond. And if we can respond in gentleness, we bring glory to his name, we follow his example, and hopefully we lead others to Christ in the process. If not those who are oppressing us, those who see how we respond in the midst of oppression. Everyone that we come into contact with will see the gentleness that we display. You know, our, what was supposed to be our last day in Ecuador <laughs> uh, was not our last day for any of us. Some got to go home a day late. The rest of us got to go home uh, a week later or a week and a few days for, uh, for Ben and Kirk. Um, but we went to the equator. That was our sightseeing day. It was uh, Wednesday. Uh, and the we, we, first place we went was to the equator. And it was, it was a neat experience, um, you know, being, seeing all of the scientific uh, stuff involved there, but we were in we the the tour guide that we had the the guide was showing us around and we walked into this hut, and it was turns out it was a display to the Alka Indians. And if you know anything about missionary history, you know that the Alkas are the ones who killed Jim Elliot and and other missionaries who were with them. They were in Ecuador trying to reach unreached people groups, and they were making an attempt to reach the Alka Indians and were making some headway. But because they were threatened, they had landed on, on a, a, a makeshift airstrip on the beach and they made contact with the Alcas. The original contact was good, but um, it turns out that, that one of the young ladies that was there um, told the, her, her brother that the missionaries were mistreating her, and then they came back the next day, and these Indians, who thought they were actually defending themselves, they killed uh, Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, uh, Roger Udarian, Peter Fleming, and Ed McCulley. We're in this hut that's kind of like a, a recognition, a tribute to these Indians. And, and there's a picture, uh, I believe Jose took this picture, and you'll see uh, the, the, there's a snake, and I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that was the picture Jose was trying to get was the picture of the snake, but also above it you'll see a spear. Can you see it at the top of the screen there? I'm standing in this hut, and I'm looking at this snake. I don't like snakes. Even if they're dead, I don't care for them. But I'm looking, and I see this spear, and my mind immediately goes to Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Roger Udarian, those guys. And I think, hey, it's probably not a spear from them, but that's the kind of spear that killed them. That was the kind of spear. We're looking at all these pictures of these, of these, these guys, and, and I'm looking at a spear. 
And then my mind immediately goes to what happened after that. So if you were Nate Saint's sister, or you were Jim Elliott's wife, how would you respond, or any relative for that matter, how would you respond to this? I I can't honestly say, because I haven't faced that, how I would respond, but I can tell you how they responded. His older sister spent basically the rest of her life with the AUKUS. Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth, went back after that with her young daughter and lived with the Alcas. They continued to build a relationship with them, and they went back for one reason and one reason only, to lead them to Christ. Now, these weren't just people that opposed them because they didn't agree with who Jesus was. These were people that had killed their brother and their husband and their father. But immediately, almost immediately, when these When the Alcas realized their purpose in leading them to Christ and sharing the love of Christ, they immediately regretted what they had done, and they accepted Christ. Matter of fact, later changed their names because of, and I don't know the exact translation, but Alcas basically means uh, warrior or something that they didn't like. They They didn't feel reflected the character of Christ. And so their faithfulness in continuing the mission, their gentleness, in the face of intense suffering, persecution, is what led those group, that group of people to Jesus. Folks, that's true gentleness in the face of persecution. And you and I are called to nothing less than that. And I think it's worth evaluating with what we are facing in our world today, as difficult as things are right now. And listen, they are. Things are tough. Things are tough in terms of COVID, things are tough in terms of our culture, our society that is not friendly to Christianity anymore, and it's probably going to get a lot worse, but we need to make up our minds now. How are we going to respond when we face opposition? How are we going to respond when we're dealing with discipling someone who is young in the faith, someone who falls into sin that we love and respect? How are we going to deal with that person? Are we going to display the gentleness of Christ or are we going to get angry and bitter and discount them, cast them aside? Will we display the gentleness of Jesus? Gentleness comes a lot easier when you know your own weaknesses, when you recognize that you're imperfect. It's out of that knowledge and gratitude for the grace that God's shown you that you're able to display the fruit, the flavor of gentleness in your life, that I'm able to display the gentleness that comes from humility. Humility is a key in all of this, humbling myself before God, showing gentleness to others. If God has been gentle and gracious to me, and I would like to be gentle with other people, and I would like for others to be gentle with me when I mess up, then I need to be gentle with others. And I need to pray that God will make me gentle, that he will give me humility as a forgiven sinner, a sinner saved by grace, I want to welcome others into the fellowship of the forgiven. And I want this gentle flavor of fruit to be a characteristic of my life. It begins with surrender. If you're not a follower of Christ, you have to surrender to him and invite him into your life. You can't display this flavor without his presence in your life. You can't have his presence if you don't know him as Lord and Savior. We talked about his crucifixion, his resurrection. He did that so that you could be saved if you don't know him. You can accept salvation today. But as a follower of Christ, this means submission daily. Because listen, human nature says, I don't want to be gentle. I don't like it when people mistreat me. I don't like suffering. I don't like it when people let me down. I don't like it when when the world is not the way I expect it to be. 
But through humility and submission, I can get to the point to where I say, you know what, I don't like it, but God has shown me grace. I'm going to extend grace. So where are you this morning? Is gentleness something you pray for? If not, maybe it's time we all started praying for gentleness. Maybe it's a characteristic that we desperately need in our world that opposes what we believe for the most part. Maybe the best way to start a revolution, a revival in our world is by showing the gentleness of Christ in the midst of difficult circumstances. Let's just go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to show us how we should respond. Father, we recognize that this is, as well as all the flavors of fruit, or it's not something that comes natural. It's not something that we're just going to be able to master on our own. It's only by your power and presence in our lives. It's only through submission. It's only through abiding in you that we can display this flavor of fruit as well as the others. But Lord, we have experienced your gentleness. And maybe right now there's someone experiencing it for the first time as you are gently bringing them under conviction for sin and calling them to repentance, calling them to turn from that sin and turn to you and receive the salvation, God, that you offer through your son, Jesus Christ, through Jesus, your death on the cross as payment for their sins and through your resurrection. They can have life, but they have to submit, surrender, and receive it from you. Like any gift, they have to receive it. For those of us who know you, maybe we're struggling with this because of pride, because of um, any number of things. Gentleness is not a part of our nature. Whatever it is, Father, you still call us to display it. And so I pray that you would just search our hearts in this moment, that you, Holy Spirit, would reveal to us any impurities, anything that, that would keep us from displaying this characteristic in our lives. You call us to be like you, and you want to make us like you, but we have to surrender, and I pray that we would surrender in this moment. Lord, may we respond however you lead us to respond. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand for our time of commitment?